Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 57 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question comes from one of my favorite Bible topics. What are spiritual gifts and why are they important? Our readings for the day start with Exodus chapter 9, which features a continuance of the struggle between Pharaoh and his magicians in the blue corner, weighing in at a combined weight of 550 pounds, and Moses and Aaron in the near corner, weighing in at around a hair under, I don't know, I'm guessing here, but about 300 pounds. So yes, it's a handicap match, but it is Pharaoh and his boys that are ultimately on the underpowered side. Job 27 sees Job continue his painful discourse, and Luke 12 contains many powerful teachings of Jesus, including his cure for anxiety. Today we're going to begin a three-part mini-series on spiritual gifts. Now, because this podcast follows the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan, which was designed during a non-leap year, we are going to have an extra day in February, and we're not taking it off, no sir. Thus, for the next three days, we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and when we get to the 29th, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter of the Bible, and we're going to discuss that. The next time this year, when we go through 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, our focus will be much more on the love chapter, which we're going to read today, 1 Corinthians 13. But as a nod to the extreme importance of 1 Corinthians 13, I don't want to overlook it. And as a foretaste of our future discussion on the passage, I'd like to turn to our friend, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, to help us frame our discussion of spiritual gifts in their proper context. That is to say, spiritual gifts are really, really important, but not as important as love, according to the Apostle Paul. And here's what Spurgeon says. Two things are in the text of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There is first a good way, and second, there is an even better way. First, the good way is for each individual Christian to, quote, desire the greater gifts, Paul was referring to spiritual gifts, gifts we ask God for, gifts we may expect the Spirit of God to bestow on us, gifts that can be used in the church of Christ, gifts we desire to possess that we may use them to the glory of God. A certain way may be good, says Spurgeon, but another way may be even better. Gifts are good, but love is better. We should desire spiritual gifts, but above all, we should seek love. The best love, the noblest love, the greatest love, that is, love to God, love to fellow believers, and love to the church of God. This is an even better way. We should seek this love first because we need it. I do not know if we need all the gifts, but I am sure we need this love. Next, we should seek this love because we can have it. There is no limit to God's love. Perhaps even though we covet earnestly the greater gifts, there may be some gifts we will never receive but all can have love. We need to get more love also because we will then be more useful. I am not sure any of us would be more useful if we had more gifts. Not every gift makes a person useful, but I am sure divine love makes us useful. 
A gift is often barren, but love is always fruitful. We need to get more love so we will glorify God. How little glory God often gets out of our great gifts. Gifts may be prostituted to the vilest purposes, but love always brings glory to God's holy name. Remember also that though we are to desire great gifts, we will lose them one day. But if we have this love, we will keep it, and it will keep us. This divine love gives us the foretaste and pledge of glory. The person who is full of the majestic grace of divine love is truly blessed. So those are important words from Brother Spurgeon, and we should take heed them. And the reason he's talking about it is because as we go through 1 Corinthians at the end, we're going to see chapter 12 is heavily focused on the spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is heavily focused on the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And right there, sandwiched in the middle, is one of the most well-known, for good reason, powerful and amazing passages in the Bible, which is all about love. Yes, it mentions spiritual gifts, but as Spurgeon tells us, it mentions love is more important. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 31 as an introduction, then 1 Corinthians 13 for us. Paul writes, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It's not arrogant. Love is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The Bible never gives us a direct and inspired definition of what a spiritual gift is exactly, but there are enough teachings in the Bible on the topic that we can come up with a pretty good definition ourselves based on what the Bible teaches. I'm going to list a few here from uh, some notable Bible teachers, and I'll give you mine. Thomas Schreiner, from his book, Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter, defines spiritual gifts as gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Dr. Roger Barrier says, 
A spiritual gift is a God-given ability distributed to individual Christians by the Holy Spirit that allows him or her to work through their lives to help the church execute its mission on the earth. Gene Wilkes from Lifeway says, A spiritual gift is an expression of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers which empowers them to serve the body of Christ the church. Pastor Tim Keller says spiritual gifts are abilities God gives us to meet the needs of others in Christ's name. It's probably the simplest gift of I me, mean, simplest definition of spiritual gifts I've heard. And Pastor John Piper says spiritual gifts are the abilities given by the Spirit which express our faith and aim to strengthen the faith of others. They are abilities by which we receive the grace of God and disperse that grace to others. Now, I I completely agree with all five of those definitions above. They're all solid, and each one captures a slightly different nuance of the Bible's teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. Note how the focus is on who the giver is, the Holy Spirit, and the focus is on what the purpose of the gifts are, the building up of the church, the followers of Jesus. Almost every definition above makes mention of these two dynamics because Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts makes those two points crystal clear. Here's my own personal definition. Spiritual gifts are various supernatural empowerments of grace given to Christians by the Holy Spirit to be used for building up others and pointing them to Jesus. The main thing, sort of uh, the distinctives in my definition, is that I emphasize spiritual gifts are supernatural. They're not natural talents, but rather supernatural abilities. Now, this doesn't really mean that Christians have superpowers, of course, but it means that the power source for these abilities is not human, but of the Spirit making it above natural or supernatural. I also suggest that spiritual gifts, in addition to building up the body of Christ, should point people to Jesus, because it seems to me that's what Paul is driving at in his discussion of spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4, which says, starting in verse 11, He himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. The spiritual gifts, therefore, work to build us up or edify us and work to point us upwards and into maturity in Christ. Now, three foundational truths about spiritual gifts. Ultimately, we'll cover at least ten of these, but let me start today with just three. Number one, everybody in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift. We're going to see that in a minute when we read 1 Corinthians 12, just a little section of it. Every saved believer in Jesus has been empowered with at least one special supernatural ability to serve others and glorify God. Number two, these gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit as he wills. 
Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 12 below that these abilities from God are directly given to believers by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the giver of spiritual gifts and is active in them, indicating that he is not only the initial gift giver, but also the gift activator and the gift sustainer. Number three, these gifts are given for the benefit of others. According to Paul, who repeats that truth multiple times in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, spiritual gifts are not primarily given for self-edification, but for the building up of others in the body of Christ. That's why Paul challenges the Corinthians, who were zealous for the operation of the spiritual gifts, so also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Now, I know here, Paul did not chastise the Corinthians for being interested in spiritual gifts, not even the controversial gifts like healing, miracles, prophecy, and tongues. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts and above all that you may prophesy. Though Paul orders the Corinthians to have orderly parameters on the operation of spiritual gifts, he never disparages any of the gifts, and he implores the Corinthians multiple times to desire the operation of spiritual gifts among them, especially the gift of prophecy. It is not immature to be interested in spiritual gifts. It is actually commanded that we be desirous of these graces in our midst. And I get all those truths from 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11, which says, A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between Spirits, to another different kinds of languages or tongues, to another interpretation of languages, But one and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. And I want to close out with a great quote from Jerry Bridges from his book, Transforming Grace. And this is what he says. This is the amazing story of God's grace. God saves us by his grace and transforms us more and more into the likeness of his son by his grace. In all our trials and afflictions, he sustains and strengthens us by his grace. He calls us by grace to perform our own unique function within the body of Christ. Then again, by grace, he gives to us each the spiritual gifts necessary to fulfill our calling. As we serve him, he makes that service acceptable to himself by grace and then rewards us a hundredfold by grace. Praise God for his grace. Amen. All right, let's read some more passages, starting with Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. 
But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that the Israelites own will die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. The Lord did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died, but none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become dust over the land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven and it became festering boils on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take to heart the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt, on people and animals, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the land, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I have sinned this time, he said to them. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer, Moses said to him. When I've left the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. But as for you and your officials, I know that you still do not fear the Lord God.
The flax and the barley were destroyed because the barley was ripe and the flax was budding, but the wheat and the spelt were not destroyed since they are later crops. Moses left Pharaoh in the city, spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail ceased, and rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. Job chapter 27, verse 1. Job continued his discourse, saying, As God lives, who has deprived me of justice, and the Almighty, who has made me bitter as long as my breath is still in me, and the breath from God remains in my nostrils, my lips will not speak unjustly, and my tongue will not utter deceit. I will never affirm that you are right. I will maintain my integrity until I die. I will cling to my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. May my enemy be like the wicked and my opponent like the unjust. For what hope does the godless person have when he is cut off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes on him? Will he delight in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? I will teach you about God's power. I will not conceal what the Almighty has planned. All of you have seen this for yourselves. Why do you keep up this empty talk? This is a wicked man's lot from God, the inheritance the ruthless receive from the Almighty. Even if his children increase, they are destined for the sword. His descendants will never have enough food. Those who survive him will be buried by the plague, yet their widows will not weep for them. Though he piles up silver like dust and heaps up fine clothing like clay, he may heap it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide up his silver. The house he built is like a moth's cocoon or a shelter set up by a watchman. He lies down wealthily, wealthy, but will do so no more. When he opens his eyes, it is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A storm wind sweeps him away at night. An east wind picks him up, and he's gone. It carries him away from his place. It blasts at him without mercy, while he flees desperately from its force. It clasps its hands at him and scoffs at him from its place. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more, but, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear." Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. 
you are worth more than many sparrows. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, Watch out. Be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, You have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious, for the Gentile world seeks eagerly all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants." But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Lord, Peter asked, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And the Lord said, 
Who then is the faithful and sensible manager his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say, A storm is coming, and so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say, It's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him along the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge hands you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last cent. Well, my friends, brothers and sisters, I, as always, hope that the word of the Lord has been edifying and encouraging and challenging for you and me both. May it bless us, lead us, fill our hearts, and be fruitful in us. In Jesus' name, Godspeed.